Hello, you're listening to Drawn to the Flame, a podcast for players of Arkham Horror, the card game. Each episode, we delve into the arcane secrets of the world of Arkham, Dunwich, Carcosa, and much, much more, looking at how traits might change your gameplay, which investigators you should choose, and searching for any esoteric information that might help you better face the horrors of the night. Like today's episode, where we might have some very interesting information for you. I'm your host, Frank, and today I'm joined by... Uh, It's me, Peter. Hello. Hi, Peter. How are you? I'm very well, very well. I'm enjoying the sunshine. How are you? Yes, it's it's great, isn't it? Yeah. Today's unusual, because I also get to say that. Uh, today, I'm joined by... Uh, it's me, John. Hello, John. Hello. <laughs> How are you? Hi, John. <laughs> it's an absolute honour to be here. <laughs> we found this um, wayward research librarian <laughs> strolling the streets of a northern town, and we've brought him onto the episode to ask him a few questions about Arkham Horror but also more generally about games. That's right, yes. Although I'm going to have a few questions for you because I am significantly less experienced with the game, but hopefully we can combine our expertise in some amazing way and actually come to some interesting conclusions, or not. Well, that seems cool. like a good place so... to start. See, oh, classic Frank. <laughs> <laughs> go on, go on. <laughs> I was gonna. I was gonna say maybe a good place to start then is we go around the table and just talk about our experience and, and our backgrounds in in gaming and Arkham. That sounds good. Sh- should I start? Please. Okay. So so yeah, I, I'm Peter. John. Nice to meet you. <laughs> nice to meet you. I'm. Uh, I played card games back in the kind of the late nineties, early noughties. I played some Pokemon and I played some Magic, but kind of fell out of that. And started to get back into board games in the late noughties, really. I played Netrunner just before Christmas at my friend's house. And then before the end of January, I'd bought two and a half core sets and a handful of data packs and was trekking every week over to Nottingham to play some of the guys over there. So, yeah, I'd always enjoyed like the Lovecraft mythos, especially the, the, the Fantasy Flight games. And when the Arkham LCG came out, I was just looking for maybe a slightly different game to Netrunner, which I was cooling off a little bit on, and found Arkham LCG, and I've loved it since I started playing it. I probably have a similar background-ish. I played a bit of Magic as a, a teenager, but I think my gateway game was actually a, a Games Workshop game, was Warhammer Quest, back in the day in the 90s when you uh, you could level up your characters by going to town and you could play multiple dungeons, and I think that was just the kind of formative game experience for me that I then probably put on the back Warhammer, burner. Warhammer Quest is Warhammer Quest is an amazing game. Yeah, it really that is. Big that big book of town events is just like an absolute treasure to read. Yeah, exactly. And it it did a very interesting thing was which was that you played with the models and the the pieces of the board, but then at the end you had to open a book and just read passages and the game kind of broke away from being on a board and started to be in your head. Uh, and you had to you had to track how many weeks travel you'd done just on a piece of paper and things like that. You didn't actually have a board to track things anymore. And then it had that whole section at the back of how to turn this this game of models into a role playing game. And so I remember just loving it as a ten, twelve year old. And I think that's probably always stayed with me. And discovering games by Fancy Flight like Descent, and then from that discovering Eldritch Horror. Yeah, that's that's my route in. 
Well, it, it, that's interesting because the Warhammer Quest card game that came out recently is not dissimilar at all to Arkham Horror, the card game. Which which we've both played, John. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And and, and I was going to say, actually, I'm glad that I'm going last because my story depends quite significantly on, on yours, Frank, to be honest, because I am at heart a video gamer. You know, I, growing up, I never played board games, really. Well, apart from the ones that you have to play with your family at Christmas and they just never actually end. But... I'm, I've, it's only fairly recently that I've gotten into card games, especially, but board games in general. But I, I grew up playing video games. I grew up playing, you know, all the standard sort of PlayStation stuff, skewing slightly towards the arty Japanese side, but nevertheless, probably slightly more more mainstream than than some of the card games were back then. And it's only only really my frequent visits to Frank in London where he kind of forced me to sort of, oh, I've got a new game, let's play this one. That kind of sparked my interest, along with a few other kind of enabling friends in the northwest of England. Um, but actually, as a result of my enjoyment of that, my life has taken a bit of a turn, obviously, and I'm now researching games, but probably board games in particular is, is the focus of a lot of my research. I'm, I'm less interested in video games now, partly because I don't have the skills to actually program. So if I want to create anything, then it's going to have to be on paper. Um, but also because I think there's actually an awful lot in the mechanics of, of card games and board games that, that is applicable to my research field, basically, more, more so than video games. So we'll come back to that idea of mechanics, because I think that's actually a really interesting one. But can you tell us broadly then what the sort of the focus of your research is? Okay, um, so I'm, I'm based in the education faculty at Manchester Metropolitan Uni. And I, my focus really is around how undergraduates learn and how we can potentially be a bit more playful with with undergraduate teaching and learning. Um, so it's a fairly kind of focused, practical thing I'm doing where I'm actually putting together a course that's based on some of the principles behind play. But but at the heart of that, obviously that involves understanding what play and games are all about. I, I, I admit I'm, I'm tending more towards the kind of play outside of games strategy in my main research, but a lot of what I'm thinking about actually comes from uh, the literature that tried to sort of understand games in across the 20th century and especially since the growth of video games and the sort of resurgence of of board games there's been an awful lot of um, academic writing about about that as those sort of cultural artifacts really so I've been doing a lot of thinking about games and how they work and how actually you can take some of the principles that make games fun and enjoyable or if fun and enjoyable is what they are uh, and take some of those principles and try and apply them to education. So it's less about taking a board game and sitting down with your students and say, let's play a game as a treat, and more about how you can yeah. make education more like a game in the first place or more, more playful in the first place. So you could, for instance, you know, deck out your classroom as though it's a ruined house and dress up as a ghoul <laughs> and force your students to... This is just thinking off the top of my head here. You could force your students to try and interrogate you to get information. Oh, absolutely, yeah. The information you'd give them is maths questions. Yeah, and a, co- a colleague of mine is is actually working on on escape rooms. They're they're actually getting fairly trendy in 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 our circles nowadays, I suppose. We've got one downstairs from our office. Yeah. Uh, in and, and my friend works at a company. Uh, my my regular Arkham playing partner. His current job. He's working at a at a cafe above escape rooms mm. with the company that runs them as well and we actually went down and did one for our team building exercise a, a couple of years ago do you think they have anything in common with a game like arkham peter um yeah yeah i i, I feel the way 
when you start, you, you want to split up your team and get everyone working on different parts of the solution. Um, we, we try to approach it in quite an optimized manner, which is kind of how I approach Arkham as well, trying to think about what is the most efficient way for everyone to, to use their actions and to carry out, to, to complete your objectives. So, so I, I'd heard, I, I've dabbled a bit in, in role-playing games uh, over the years. Um, the more traditional stuff like your Warhammer Fantasy role-play and, um, and Dungeons and & Dragons. But more recently, I've, I've really been enjoying the RPGs of, of Ben Robbins, who runs Lame Mage. And he's got a couple of a handful of RPGs, which which are used mm. not only as learning aids, but also as kind of community sessions. There's a couple in particular. I think Microscope and Kingdom. I read about someone who used so. So Kingdom is an RPG where you play a society, and uh, you you all pick different roles in the society of different people. But really, there's three types of people everyone plays. You either a power. Uh, role who decides what happens you're a you're a um, perspective role who predicts what's going to happen or you're a touchstone and you're able to read the mood of the people so the game is all about the interactions of those roles where the you know the power person's making the decisions but actually they don't know what's going to happen as a result of what they're going to choose and I, i'd read a lesson plan someone using this to teach children about lord of the flies cool. and they, they got all the kids to pick pick a person on the island and then they were one of those types of roles and the game is structured around crossroads so you you pick a, a, a decision and then you all role play scenes based around that decision and then you know once you know the the potential outcomes and how it's going to affect how people think then you um mm. then the power person gets to decide yeah and and he, he had interviews with the kids afterwards and they were they appreciated the themes of the book a lot more after having role played and experienced it that's really interesting because part of my, re- I mean, not to get too, I don't want to, you know, kind of commit too much because I'm still in very relatively early stages, but I'm, I'm focusing a lot on the kind of political aspects of, of becoming an undergraduate, I suppose, and, and the, the ways in which new students are kind of inducted into this machine of academia. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of politics involved in that, and a lot of power relationships that need to be questioned. So one thing I'm thinking about is how, how games are really useful for allowing you to take on a different role or to question how other people think or, you know, develop empathy, those kind of things. And I, I do think that role play in particular can really help with that. There's also an extent to which in education, especially in classroom education, that that's actually something that, that doesn't really get focused on an awful lot, with given the, the, the nature of the curriculum in the UK, which is fairly kind of fact-based. Um, opportunities like that are few and far between, but they, they can have a real impact on students. You know, one day of something like that, can actually have the you know an impact on on the, on the student's whole development. I think really, especially in, in childhood. That's really interesting. And that that idea of of maybe breaking down the roles that you expect of teacher and child, or to bring it mm. slightly mm. back to Arkham, the idea of a games master or players, and that within the game you can you can kind of that slightly turns it all on its head and throws it up in the air and and lets things kind of fall apart to a certain extent. So, so maybe, maybe talking about Arkham then again, what's, as someone who's probably less familiar with board and card games, what's been your impression of Arkham? I've, it's quickly become my favourite of the games that Frank has foisted on me, <laughs> to the extent that, I mean, I've, we've played a lot of Netrunner over the years, Frank, but I've never actually bought my own deck and gotten into the deck building. But I've all, you know, this, this 
this I think is more my kind of game. And I think it's a lot looking at the history of games that I've enjoyed and and combining that with my research. There's a there's a concept that I'm I'm very fond of that I think applies really strongly um, to Arkham Horror, and that's this concept that gets used a lot in, in games called the Magic Circle. Um, this was a, a concept developed by um, the game scholar called Johann Heisinger, I think you pronounce it, who was writing in the 1930s. I, l- I love that you're just making um, up names on the fly. He talks about... If you can spell him. Um, <laughs> and um, he, he basically... It's one paragraph of one of his books that's kind of taken off and become this massive deal in games, especially it's been sort of revitalised since the turn of the century, basically. But he refers to the magic circle, this idea that it's a sort of... When you're playing whether you're playing a game or just play at playing as a you know as children play you're in a, a sort of a, a separate space from the real world and different rules apply and you're kind of separated in both time and space from the rest of the world now lots of people read that have or have read that over the years as meaning that play is completely separated from the world and that there is you know when you're playing a game nothing applies and you're 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 kind of you've left your whole life behind but I think actually what's really interesting are the kind of edge cases where the magic circle becomes kind of permeable or transparent and the real world impinges on the game and the game impinges on the real world. And I definitely think that Arkham Horror is one of those games for, for quite a few reasons, actually, various different factors that I think Fantasy Flight have done on purpose and some that they haven't done on purpose make it a kind of a place where the magic circle and the boundaries between the game and the real world get really blurry. So, 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 John, can you give us like a a, a a layman's example? I guess a layman's example, or an example, a cogent paradigm of of of, <laughs> of the the magic circle in in a game everyone might have played, like outside of Arkham. Okay, so I mean, I mean Johann Heisinger. One of my one of my issues with with early twentieth century play scholars is that they're all men. And they all write about chess and sport. And that's it. That's the extent of their game. This is all pre-video games. And even when video games have been invented, they refuse to write about them until about the year 2000. But anyway, um, they talk about sport a lot, basically. So, for instance, if you're involved in a football match, there are set certain rules in a football match that apply that don't apply in the real world. And at the same time, the rules of the real world don't apply um, in that football match. And the football match, actually, I mean, because the magic circle gets used about twice, I think, in Heisinger's book. He talks about playgrounds a lot. With, in the, with football, there is a playground, literally. There is a field that you're playing on and it's bounded and it has a line around it. And, you know, the crowd almost form an extra barrier with the real world if you're a professional footballer. It's time limited as well. It's 90 minutes or however long after 90 minutes until, you know, the, the score is settled. But obviously, you know, there are there are behaviours that you engage in when you're playing football that you would never engage in anywhere else. You wouldn't slide tackle. You wouldn't do what the referee tells you to do if he just told you to do something in the street. But because he's on the pitch and he's wearing black and he's got the notebook, he's in charge, you know. So it's all aspects like that, really, that that mean that you're almost in this kind of separate little world of its own when you're playing that game. And the same, this, even with a board game, you know, you follow the rules seriously you you take the rule seriously even though it's just a game yeah. like people say i was doing inverted commas with my fingers then <laughs> and you wouldn't kind of necessarily uh take things as seriously as soon as the game is stopped and and then the magic circle can break as well if someone cheats if someone gets injured suddenly the real world kind of comes back in and becomes more important so the circle itself is is a circle around not only the physical space we're playing in where the game the rules of the game 
apply, but also the kind of the headspace, the idea space we're in when we're playing the game. Yeah, yeah, it's a it is a it's a useful metaphor for describing how things work. But the issue is that I think that a, that a lot of people have taken it too literally and seen it as a, a physical space or as a space that is definitely bounded and definitely has lines around it that where things can't pass between. So, for instance, the Magic Circle has a lot of issues dealing with cheating in video games, especially as esports has, has come out there's a lot of writing about esports and the trouble is is that, that then you've got a blur between breaking the rules of the game within the game and the legal impact of breaking the rules of the game in real life because then suddenly your cheating in the game has cost someone millions of pounds in sponsorship or something like that or has cost them their job well, ma- match fixing of any sort sort of exactly, into yeah, that, doesn't it yeah, yeah yeah so it's so it's it's far less it, it, it's not necessarily Heisinger. It's, it's people's reading of Heisinger as, as it being very literal. I think that has been a, has been an issue. But there's increasingly more and more scholarship around how permeable this is and how actually, as a metaphor, it's still useful even if we don't take it incredibly seriously. As this is the the bounds of the game are strict and unending and will never and never be as a it. useful metaphor. It's really. I think it's very applicable to Arkham because one of the things we've seen right from the start of this game is that they want to challenge the players to think about what they're playing. And they've said from the start that it's a card game, but it's also a role-playing game. And even from the sort of first couple of scenarios in the game, there are things like asking the players to make decisions, which suddenly gives agency back to the players in a way that they maybe weren't expecting to have it or flipping cards over and then not being what you expect them to be. I'm thinking of a particular card in the second scenario of the core set that you're expecting it to look one way and it's actually a, an enemy. It's the masked hunter. So it's sort of the, mm. the sort of mm. the, the expectations are being turned on their head by the game designers um, or the expectations of the players at least, uh, which I think is quite, quite interesting. Absolutely, yeah. I think from a from a perspective of someone who's played a, a few cards, I mean, I, I'm not a card game expert, but as someone who's played a few games, one of the things interesting about Arkham so far is that it it does break those established rules. If you look at card gaming and clump that all together within a magic circle, yeah. I don't know whether I'm using this metaphor right, but 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 there's a certain set of of rules and and customs associated with card games like when i sit down and play uh you know if if i've sat down and played lord of the rings or warhammer conquest broadly i know how it's going to work i don't know the exact rules and the timing windows and you know what the tokens mean but i i know roughly how i'm going to interact with it and how it's going to interact with me i think one of the things i found interesting about arkham is it turns a lot of those rules on their heads and that cards aren't what you think they're going to be your deck isn't what you think it's going to be your deck changes uh outside of your control and within your control and it persists between sessions as well yeah. that's really important Which are all yeah. things that are, are, are yeah they're all things that are very the, new uh, what, to a game like this one I of think. the things that i think makes it particularly good for kind of broken magic circle transparent magic circle whatever you want to call it um is that it's an lcg and lcgs do lend themselves to this but i think fancy flight have quite deliberately gone gone down quite, down quite an extreme route with that They've taken lots of things from legacy games. I think that's that's really important. So um, Rob uh, Davio, who designed Pandemic Legacy and Seedfall, and he's the you know the the legacy game guy. He did a GDC talk um, uh, whenever GDC was, <laughs> and he he kind of says that one of the things about 
one of the principles that, that legacy games break is the assumption that the game designer will never lie to you and will never trick you. And actually, I think Fantasy Flight are doing quite a lot of that in, in Arkham Horror. They, they, they mislead you. They make you think, like Frank said, they make you think cards are going to go one way and then they go another way. And that actually helps with that blurring of the magic circle because you're no longer able to just re- react in character. It actually shapes you as a person. You know? So even if you're playing the role very seriously... It might be that conversation yeah. comes off yeah. the table for a second and you start to think, how are we going to deal with this? That's interesting, you know. A really a really tiny example of that is in the Essex County Express where there's one of the train cars that says, action, take three resources, remember that you've stolen a passenger's luggage. Mm. And we know, well, we think we know from the rules of the game that remember will only refer to the scenario you're in. It won't have lasting consequences. But immediately players go, well... Mm, do I want to steal a passenger's luggage? What happens yeah. if I? What happens if I do? What well, I mean, the, the context. The context to that is that uh, in one of the first scenarios, you can cheat. So you're in a you're in a gambling house and you cheat, and at the end of the scenario, something bad happens to you because you've cheated, or you take a drink and something bad happens to you because you've taken a drink. Yeah, remember that you've taken a drink. Remember that you've cheated. So you see, oh, you remember you've stolen the luggage, and you're like, nope, no way, no, it's not worth it. <laughs> But then, of course, yeah. it, as far as we know, it's not connected to anything. <laughs> so these are the red herrings that uh, uh, someone running a role-playing game might put into their game. But they're also, as you say, the sort of the Rob Davio legacy thing where you actually can't take it at face value anymore because it's... Yeah, exactly. It's sort of and, and, and the fact that it's an LCG in general forces you down that route anyway. Because, I mean, one one thing that I think is interesting, this isn't necessarily just living car games, but... Lots of modern games, I think, encourage you to think away from the game. So, for instance, you two run a podcast about this about this card game, you know, <laughs> um, or you know, there's, there's the wikis and the blogs, and there's the the kind of discussion on on Discord and Twitter and all that kind of thing. And all of that, I would say, is part of playing the game in a way. You know, that you would, as much as people write do blog about, you know, sort of playing Call of Duty or. Um, or, or football, I think that something like this, it's almost, it's almost required the thought off the board while you're reshuffling your deck and trying things out and, and thinking about what you're going to do next. And it's amazing how quickly that came in because I, I, I still don't own a set of, of Arkham Horror. Sorry, listeners. But I, I find myself thinking about, thinking about Arkham cards more than I think about some games that I actually own because I'm, I'm waiting for the next time I play with Frank, you know, with his cards. And I find that absolutely fascinating um, that, that it does kind of follow you around like that and it almost sort of becomes part of your real life. Yeah. And there's there's two things going on there. One is the deck building aspect that there's a whole... that Some people don't enjoy deck building, but if you can reach that point where you do enjoy it, it actually can be a very rewarding game in its own right that has its own rules and has its it creates a, a magic circle of one where you're sort of getting involved in that. And it's completely separate from the actual playing of the game. You don't have to get involved in deck building. You can just turn up and throw together a starter deck and you're ready to go. But you can find yourself being dragged into this separate world. And we know that Arkham wants you to think about that because mm. it's created a card like Adaptable that adds more deck building choices well, to a player. I'm just going to bring this up, Frank. Deck building is, has been something that's interested me in the other card games I've played. I do enjoy deck building and talking about tweaking particular decks but actually i guess you could say arkham has formally brought that in to part of the game space 
where you've got you get experience between between scenarios and your deck changes so now i'm not only having discussions casual discussions with my friends about oh what do you think about this deck i'm saying right i've got five experience to spend after this scenario we think this might be going to happen what are you putting in your deck what should i put in my deck and it's it's formalized that and in fact it not only is it formalized it they've printed cards that interact specifically with that section of the game which don't interact with the game in other ways. So Adaptable does nothing in, in your... Uh, Delve Too Deep is an even better example. Delve Too Deep does nothing to help your deck. It doesn't have... Um, there's no pips on it, so you can't commit it to a test. It's just a card in your, in, in your hand that gets in the way. And in fact, when you play it during the game, it makes it harder for everyone, because <laughs> everyone has to draw an encounter card. But it has that effect outside of the game. Outside of you sitting down at a table playing it, yeah, it makes it makes the deck building bit more delicious, though. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I, I suppose there's another legacy element in the fact that your your decks are upgrading. You're not you're not tearing up the cards that you're taking out of your deck, but you're being expected to think about your deck as it evolves, and it it's a a sort of a a document to what's happened so far, rather than simply being that you finish playing, you put your deck in its deck box, and the next time you play, you take that same deck out and play again. You know, there's there's an expectation that you'll engage with it, basically, as you play. I absolutely you wouldn't said. put it past Fantasy Flight to, to include a card that you suddenly have to destroy. I can see it kind of a couple of years down the line while they're still, they're still releasing things, and suddenly there's a card that when you encounter it, it, it asks you to destroy it or asks you to rip up one of your own cards or something like that. Which would be well, we've had something probably, we've had know. something close-ish to that, which is that in Blood on the Altar, if if something unfortunate happens and you get you you have an, a unique ally in your deck that gets kidnapped and sacrificed, you're no longer allowed to include it in your deck, and it's I suppose it's the closest to tearing up the card mm. without actually tearing up the card. But that you you can't yeah. then pay experience to put it back in your deck. That character is is gone from the game and no one else who might be allowed to take that card is allowed to, to put it in their deck either it's just it's just removed so there is that sense that there might be some players out there who the deck building restrictions for them are different than they are for the rest of the Arkham playing world because Brother Xavier or Dr. Milan Christopher or Peter Sylvester has actually died in their in their game world. Not Dr. Milan Christopher. Yeah, not Dr. Milan. Never, not, never Dr. Milan Christopher. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, they've exactly. also, I, I don't know whether you've seen this, John, but the Terminal Directive box set has come out for, for Netrunner. Yes. So I, yeah. I, I've started playing it. I've played uh, two games so far. And while I think I think the game itself is less suited to that format um, than Arkham is, and I think the way Arkham deals with the deck building and stuff is better. You could see elements they've introduced in Terminal Directive could really be used in a in an Arkham box set campaign. And yeah, I can see them in that one. You know, you you having to destroy cards. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, maybe even having maybe the method of destruction gets circumscribed or something like that. So you have to have a. There's lots of games involving fire at the moment, I've noticed. So maybe I'm thinking, you know, yeah, you could have I a literal flame. Um, was there one you? called Twelve Candles? <laughs> I think. Yeah. Yes, that's it. I think something candles. <laughs> yeah, you, you have twelve tea lights on the table, don't you? And as they go out during the game, 
but your time because you, you're playing like at the end of civilization it, yeah. i seem to remember and you have hopes and dreams written on cards which you burn in in a bowl in the center of a table as they're destroyed oh, fire as gameplay yeah do you not do you not burn your <laughs> arkham cards as you play them that's i'm surprised guys <laughs> you're being very literal about <laughs> card game terminology there really aren't you <laughs> Were you a fan of Lovecraft before you got involved in this, or <laughs> not really? No, <laughs> but I have I've read up on Lovecraft since uh, kind of actually since playing Eldritch Horror, which I played with Frank. We've probably been playing that for a few years now, haven't we? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I, so I I kind of read it and and less I'm I'm less into it than than other people are, I think. But I do think he's fascinating in terms of this kind of sort of blurred boundaries because because everything is about kind of being unknowable and not being sure about what's going on behind you and and not being um things not being quite right um and i think that's really interesting in terms of the magic circle um there's a a guy called paul booth whose book i I just read it's all about what he calls paratextual board games which are board games that are based on on other intellectual properties basically so he writes about the battlestar galactica game and the lord of the rings game but the first chapter is about the original arkham horror game and he talks about how that game, and I think this this in this case it matches the card game. Has what he calls an unstructure, so there's randomness built into the game that directly reflects the randomness and unfairness of the of the Lovecraft universe. And that idea that you're delving into the unknown and you're not really sure what's going to come come next absolutely fits with with my reading of Lovecraft. Anyway, I mean, what's really interesting, I think, is that I think it's fairly well-known that Fantasy Flight have taken their own spin on, on Lovecraft and made it a bit more kind yeah. of 1930s serial punching kind of stuff. There's very little punching in the books, you know? <laughs> but there's also lots of, yeah. there's a lot of punching in the games. But in a way, I think that matches with the Magic Circle as well because it allows you more choice as a character, I suppose. You're, you're, you have a bit more agency than you would if you were just a character in a Lovecraft book where that things happen to and then you, and then you die. Yeah. <laughs> you know? One of the things that they definitely definitely sort of leapt on that one of the things that really struck me with Eldritch Horror, well, one thing was that it was a collaborative board game and I played Warhammer mm. Quest but hadn't played many other things that were strictly collaborative, which is quite a strange, I think, approached it assuming that the playing of games was a, an adversarial thing. And it's, I still have friends who won't play cooperative games because they don't think they're real games. Yeah, you're sitting around helping each other. Why would you do that? Surely, John, you are the exact person to disabuse them of that notion. Well, I try, (laughs) but I'm too nice. (laughs) He's he's doing a PhD so that he can. (laughs) And then the other thing about Eldritch Horror is that it's hard and it's explicitly a difficult game. And it's a game that, you know, a player's win rate might be something like 50%. You know, there's some players who are very good at it who play a, mm. lot, a lot better than that. But And that's sort of directly taken from the, the Lovecraft world, that, that the world is out to get you and that it's difficult. And then you see that translated then into Arkham, that you can actually make games that are, mm. are challenging and it's not about having a nice happy ending necessarily. What's interesting about the LCG is because it's an LC, because it's a, an ongoing plot, you you can have those cliffhangers and those unhappy endings far more, I think, than you can in have a game in a game you can have in a game where there is an end. You know, funny enough, I know people who bounced right off Eldritch Horror because they won their first game, and I think actually you need to lose Eldritch Horror to understand 
what it's like to win, if that makes sense. Whereas this this gives you far more opportunities to lose and win within within the context of a campaign. Yeah. The designers have, have tried to really emphasise that, that that often aren't win or lose resolutions at the end of scenarios. Exactly, yeah. You, know, you have yeah. to just commit yeah. to the story rather than the win or loss. And that then draws you out of the magic circle because you're you're kind of thinking, well, what is this game then if I haven't won it or lost it? I don't understand. Yeah, I think, I think so that, the sort of lack of win or loss and then also just the, the difficulty level that it can be hard, mm. it's interesting seeing people in the community being somewhat taken aback by that. So there's been a few people on Facebook sort of saying, I can't win this scenario. And you, someone else will reply saying, well, there isn't a, there isn't a win. It's just do as well as you can and that's okay. And then also people saying, oh man, I keep losing the scenario because the encounter cards keep just coming out in the wrong order. And saying, well, that is the random unknowableness of the world. Mm, and it's actually yeah. maybe that that's meant to be part of the experience that you can have a really horrible combination of cards come at you and you've, you've got to sort of take it on the chin rather than say, well, the game's broken or what a poorly designed game. I, don't, I may be stretching things too far here, but I do, I mean, I've, I've gotten into this game partly because it's come out at the same time as I've started my PhD. You know, <laughs> Manchester Metropolitan is nothing like the Miskatonic University, but I do find myself wandering down the alley, the alleyways of, of the library, wondering if the next book I open is going gonna, is gonna to be the answer that I need. <laughs> and there's something, in, there's something reflective of the research journey in the game that you're kind of hoping that the next thing isn't going to be a, a dead end and you're, you are going to actually understand more by the time you actually finish this bit. So does this mean you're drawn to seeker characters in Arkham? The sort of the ones with access to books and tomes and librarians and things like that? See, this is a really interesting question because I, I think about role-playing quite a lot. I mean, Frank, you know that every time I start a game that involves role-playing, I text you with a full breakdown of the character I'm planning on playing. You know, I take role-playing very seriously. Yeah, I think memorably <laughs> you played Skyrim as a recovering alcoholic wood elf who used yeah. to be a thief. But after his wife was killed, he'd vowed not to steal or something like that. Or... Yeah, he was trying to he was trying to behave himself, but um, he was getting constantly drawn off the off the wagon. The weird thing about that was were. that you kept playing the Benny Hill soundtrack as you played, though. <laughs> That's one of the best mods they released for Skyrim. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, uh, there's a, a a guy who's who's very influential in, in education games um, called James G. Who I've just reread actually his his little chapter this morning just because I knew it was going to come up. Who who talks about playing characters and how you you play you can't help but play if you're role playing you play as the character you're playing you play as yourself as well because you make moral decisions based on your own morality. But you also there's an there's a third bit where you you emphasise playing at you as that character. So it's acknowledging the link between the two. And actually, I'm, I'm less drawn to seeker characters because I'm my natural thing when I'm role playing is to play someone who isn't like me. You know, I always play sneaky, um, suave characters because I'm neither of those things in real life. You know? <laughs> um, I quite have gone like, either my, way. I think you're about to. Yeah, <laughs> my favourite characters have been the. Um, I always forget the terminology. The kind of survivor traded. They're all survivors, aren't they? Yeah, no, no, survivors, right? So yeah. survivors—they're the, they're the ordinary people, right? So one of my favourite mini themes in the survivors, if you notice, all of their weapons aren't that their primary purpose isn't being a weapon. Yeah. So that they're all very—they're they're improvising, and that all of the stuff they've got is other stuff turned to the purpose of fighting the mythos. Yeah, and I think that—that's why I like playing survivor characters actually, because they, because I can kind of draw that line between myself and the character, and and try and. 
because so much of what you're doing in the game is kind of supposedly improvising you know what have you got in your hand let's just kind of i mean there are cards about there are literally cards about improvising aren't there and i think that i i like that aspect of the game and so i like characters that where it's encouraged to just kind of throw what you've got in and see what happens you know and and you've got that extra layer of improvisation that most cards in your hand can also just be thrown into a test for their icons so at any given time you're sort of do I want to play this machete or do I just need it for the combat pip for a particularly difficult test and sort of even weighing up that everyone gets a little bit of improvisation where they have to sort of Mm, mm. evaluate what's in their hand and what they want to do I think um, uh, I'm sure Matt Newman has gone on record saying maybe it was someone on Mythos Busters I can't remember exactly saying that the moment that they knew that that the game was working was when people were making the decision that in in the core set there's a at the end of the first scenario you have to make a decision to burn your house down or not Uh, people were making that decision based on what their character would do rather than what they would do Um, but there's of course gameplay impact of that choice as well so they're making that choice based trying to balance you know what they think they want as a player and what they want as a character yeah it's same with opening the box the uh, the danish legacy box for the first time and you've got this choice do you want to go to the, the university and look for rice or the speakeasy and look for morgan and if you've not played those scenarios before you don't know what the ramifications are and there's no extra clause saying but hurry the night is late or you know what you choose will affect everything you do but you know it as a player and you have to make the decision based on on really what you think your characters might do or what you feel like doing certainly the first time and and, and actually this happened in the latest pack i won't say what what the choice is because we're with our spoiler policy says we don't talk about it yet but there's a choice right at the start of the, of, of the next pack mm but the difference is we have no idea what the mechanical yeah, impact yeah. is. And that's really interesting because I, I think other games where you you play a character are less built for you to take take on the role of that character, I suppose. So, for instance, Netrunner, your characterization effectively comes through the build of your deck because certain characters have certain deck builds that do certain things and certain cards that do certain... And that, that is the extent of your role-playing. You never make decisions in, in Netrunner based on, oh, would my character do this? You're making decisions to win the game. Because it's cooperative and because your actions don't necessarily have the outcomes that you think they're going to have, I think you can kind of remove yourself from the I've got to win sometimes and make that decision. Well, what would my character do? What would I do? What would my character do? Is there a difference between the two? Again, the real world's kind of influencing that. Because I remember with the burning burning down the house, I was playing as, um, what's the name of the orphan? Uh, the first, Wendy. Oh, Wendy. Wendy, the first time we played that. And I thought, well, I thought it was weird that Wendy even had a house in the first place. So I just burnt it down. You know, she 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 became quite a nihilist after that point. But it was it was yeah. You decided that she was sort of squatting there. Yeah, or something, basically, right? yeah, it wasn't even her house. She didn't really care. So yeah, the house went. But it, that became quite an easy decision for me. Whereas I think if 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 I was only focused on winning, or like we said, I would just be concerned with well, which of these is the optimal you know solution, which is going to get me the most points. You've mentioned fourth wall breaking as well. Yeah. Which which is an interesting one. D- can you tell us how you think that would impact in, in Arkham? Or, have a, or do you have an example from another game? So other games do this quite well. I mean, one one thing that I, one game that I'm a bit obsessed with, which is a video game, is uh, The Witness. And not to, not to spoiler The Witness too much, but there is an, a fair amount of fourth wall breaking in that game where it acknowledges not only that it's a game, but also that you're the person playing it in a really clever way. So you start to project yourself 
into the game and the game projects itself back out onto you. I do think that given that given the nature of the Lovecraft universe, there's an there's an extent to which I wouldn't be surprised if if cards started to almost acknowledge that the players were getting a hint that they weren't real and they were being con- the characters sorry were getting a hint that they weren't real and they were being controlled by external forces <laughs> i.e. the players of the game i do think that would be really interesting yeah, that's a really kind of rich avenue to go down yeah yeah i had this moment with blood on the altar where i was playing as ashcan pete and i ended up having my trusty loyal hound duke sacrificed which i've spoken about on a different podcast but one of the feelings that gave me was one of sort of an inability to do anything efficiently, a kind of general incompetence because I no longer had my mm. dog. And I found that very frustrating and saddening. And then I realized that I was feeling perhaps just like Pete was in the game because yeah. he'd lost his yeah. dog and was feeling very sad about it. And I thought that, yeah. that was a really impressive moment when I'd been kind of dragged into role-playing without even thinking it i was i was annoyed mechanically because i didn't have the card that was very powerful anymore and yet actually that led to sort of an emotional response that was quite different from the frustration with cards Mm. one thing that kind of strikes me about how the game could develop following the lines you've talked about a lot of people i don't know whether you know this john but a lot of people are making custom scenarios Mm. So they're they're designing their own cards. They've found the templates, and and people can print them off and play them. And they use sometimes cards that have already been printed. But sure. I, I I don't wonder whether FFG would would print a custom scenario kit with you know a set of blank cards uh, with with some generic, almost like a top up to the core set encounter cards with generic enemies, generic encounters that people could put into their. Uh, their own custom scenarios. You could make up your own custom scenarios with those. We've already seen as well that they've introduced apps to Descent and then to Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition where that's a way of doing random generation that doesn't require a huge rules document for you to find the right things that you need and and shuffle them together. There's no way that you can know really what you're about to face in those games because they use a... They use the sort of opaqueness of an app to do that. Mm, mm. Um, maybe, maybe tacked onto that sort of custom top-up generic enemies and events, you could have an app that would go shuffle these ones together, and you sort of don't know what's quite being built. That's really interesting. I mean, I, funny enough, I was going to mention Madness and Madness because you've, we've played a couple of sessions. I've got the second editions, and I, in a way, I mean, I enjoy it as a game, but I find it slightly more frustrating than than Arkham Horror, the card game, simply because the app. As much as it covers the, the it, it hides some of the process from you, it becomes fairly easy to see what it's doing quite early on. If you play play the same scenario a few times, you quite quickly get to go through the motions of I oh, I get this now. Weirdly, you'd think that playing the same scenario in Arkham Horror the card game would give you the same effect because you know exactly where it's going and you know that at the end of this I'm going to have to burn my house down or whatever. But actually, it can be far more surprising I think simply because there's enough randomness built in. Maybe the programming yeah, of the app got... or, or something like that is slightly less random than the draw of the card. I think I think it's also that thing that you started off early on saying, and they said we'd come back to this about video games versus board games and mm. how for your PhD board games are quite useful to study. And I think 
one of the reasons might be because the mechanics of board games are normally on the surface. There's a rules document yeah. that you can look at easily and you can see how it's meant to fit together. And then any any kind of randomness or surprise in Arkham particularly is to do with the shuffling of the deck and drawing chaos tokens. And it's not to do with an inbuilt randomness that's meant to be hidden necessarily. Mm, mm, you know? yeah. And similarly, uh, scenarios where you have to pick locations at random you can still go and you can go and find out what's on the back of all of those locations, but you don't know necessarily when you start if you're not cheating. And a lot of video games try to conceal those mechanics from you, or indeed, with something like Art, uh, with Mansions of Madness in the app, they're they're trying to hide what's happening behind the scenes from you to add a level of suspense. But that actually means they're harder to study. But also maybe not seeing the the mechanics visibly isn't necessarily always a good thing. Well, it will lead to disappointment, I think, because I think that sort of random generation is always oversold. You think about No Man's Sky and the reaction to that, this procedurally generated universe, which was brilliant and a technical accomplishment, but actually everything kind of looked the same after about 10 10 levels, 10 10 planets, and you start to realise what they're changing and what they're not changing. And I've definitely got that case with the the Mansions of Madness app is you can you can see what gets changed scenario to scenario and what doesn't what definitely doesn't get changed scenario to scenario. Yeah. But then again, I think my favourite scenario on that app is the one that really doesn't change at all. It's really well written. It's got some interesting encounters in it, and it doesn't need the randomization. Although I think yeah. you know the randomization would obviously make it a bit more unstructured, as Paul Booth would say, a bit more Lovecraftian. But you've got to balance that out with good writing, I suppose. Peter, do you have any final questions? Uh, just if there's, if, is there anywhere if people want to learn a bit more? Maybe this is somewhere they can they can look up what you're involved in, John. So yeah, the best the, the best place to look for my stuff. There's a whole group of us at, um, at Manmet who are all working on various aspects of games and board games from various departments. Um, we've got a website which is gamesresearchnetwork.org, and that's not really written i mean we're all academics but it's not really written for an academic audience it's fairly kind of public facing exciting stuff but we we meet fairly regularly to play games and discuss them and and think about their implications so there's lots of interesting bits of writing linking games to sort of our subject concepts basically um i've written a couple of things about the implications of a couple of games for education on there so that's probably the best place gamesresearchnetwork.org thank you very much thank you so much for your time thank you it's been great being here you can find Peter and me at all the usual places and we hope you like this episode and see you next week. No, I wouldn't say see you next week, would I? I don't see you, listener. And catch you next week. <laughs> Smooth. <laughs> Thank you. Smooth. Oh, I forgot to plug my Twitter account. I've just realised. Plug it now and I'll add it all in. Right. Um, or you can find me on Twitter. I'm uh, Mr. JJ Lean on Twitter, although I don't talk about games a lot on there. If you ask him games questions, he will answer. Yeah, I will, yes. <laughs> Why have we got this guy? And I, but, yeah. <laughs> Terminate recording but immediately. I, I, <laughs> we're trying to, get, we're trying to get Matt Newman on, and he's like, he's going to hear this and be, who are these jokers? Well, I'm hoping I'm hoping that I might get a free. I, I, don't, know, I don't think Matt Newman has bought a copy yet either. We'll have to ask Matt Newman if he's paid for a copy. Um, 